Hey guys, happy Friday. It is May 1st. Oh my heavens. So I chose that song because guess what? We are the champions because even remotely, we got to today. Yay, us. Um, anyway, uh, what I'd like to do is teach you a little bit about al-Baghdadi and then the fall of ISIS. And then I want to close with the future of insurgency groups and terrorist groups and um, would love... Um, I don't know, touch base with y'all and, and hear what you guys have to say and um, and what you think about what you've learned the past couple of weeks. So with that, let's take it away. So al-Baghdadi, as you know, is a, became the leader of ISIS. So just if you don't know anything about him, he actually grew up um, in a very poor family, a village, farming village near Samarra, Iraq. Um, and believe it or not, but his family was uh, Sufi, which is an extremely tolerant um, a sect of Islam. And um, it's when he moved to Baghdad in the early 1990s when he became more radical. So put in context, context this is right after the Persian Gulf War. That could make sense. He actually got his doctorate in Islamic studies from the University of Baghdad. Remember we talked about Anbari yesterday. Um, and he also claims descendancy to the Quraysh tribe. So if you recall from your freshman year, that is the tribe that Muhammad's family was a part of. So what's interesting about him is he kind of became part of Al-Qaeda in the early years of... Anyway, nothing's known about him for a, a long time. His name, no one knew about it. So in the American occupation about you know 2003, he joined forces with the with Al-Qaeda, and not as a fighter, but as a religious figure. And um, he was most attracted to Zarqawi's group. And if you remember yesterday, we, uh, and Bari had his own group, Zarqawi had his own group, all right? And so Zarqawi had the Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Now, there, as of now, there's no true proof that he was ever super close with Zarqawi, um, but he, he was drawn to that group. So if you recall, after Saddam Hussein was ousted, uh, as you can imagine, the radical extremist groups became more and more violent. And when Hussein was in power, he was able to keep a lid on both of them. You know, what this makes me think of is think of Joseph Tito in Yugoslavia after World War II and how there's all those different ethnic groups in, world, uh, in Yugoslavia. And he was able to control them and he died in 1980 and then everything just all hell broke loose. So <clears throat> basically one thing that Zarqawi is able to do as was Anbari is make, make a great enemy out of, out of America, make a great enemy out of Shias. But also one thing that's very, very important is to, uh, as a recruiting tool, is if you recall when we talked on our Zoom uh, about the invasion of Iraq, Saddam Hussein's military was purged. All right, huge mistake. I'm gonna be honest with you. I think that was a huge mistake that's a great place to find potential leadership. Like if you're going to run a jihadist group and you need some good leaders, hell, these guys have been trained, they're experienced. So um, Baghdadi, that was his preference. Um, Zarqawi actually preferred foreign leadership, but Baghdadi, he actually went towards um, Saddam Hussein's former military leaders, which I find very, very interesting. In 2004, he was actually arrested, um, but 
He was released in that same year with a bunch of other prisoners because they were considered low level. Again, this is why I'm telling you this is because no one knew his name. Like he was a nobody. All right. In 2004, just so you know, this is the same year that Zarqawi got the blessing from Osama bin Laden to create Al-Qaeda in Iraq. All right. So this is when we have kind of this movement forward. In 2006, if you recall yesterday, I told you Zarqawi was murdered. And this was a huge blow to the leadership of the organization. Remember, remember, so this is so important. I'm, I'm leaving you with hopefully some good knowledge is when you have a terrorist group and you knock out the leadership, it's dead. Zarqawi, when he died, it didn't it didn't kill, it didn't kill the group, right? Uh, and so, yes, it's it's going to impact the organization, but um, it's an insurgency at this point. It's not going to go away. Uh, America's at the Americans at this point in Iraq, their focus w- was on wiping out Al Qaeda leadership. Again, fighting terrorist groups, not hearts and minds. We need to know our definitions. Um, it was also in 2006 that Anbari merged, and this is when we had the Islamic State in Iraq, all right? And this is when Baghdadi really starts to kind of flex his leadership skills. So let's bounce to April of 2010. In April of 2010, a joint operation of Iraqi and American forces made a huge strike against the group and killed two major figures, all right? A month later, a month later, the group announced, formally announced, I don't know if you remember this, I guess you were, no, you weren't watching the news then, but Baghdadi was announced as the official new leader of the Islamic State in Iraq. Okay. The West was like, who, who is he? Like what, (laughs) what is this? Right. June, 2010, one month later, uh, there was a report that was stated that this group, eh, you know, their future looks bleak. Um, now in the report, it refers to the Islamic state of Iraq, but it just, eh, they, they got nothing. Okay. So how, how does this happen? How does ISI become ISIS? All right. And so that whole story I told you yesterday about Syria, that's a big, big, big part. So the Sunni tribes in Eastern Syria and Iraq's Anbar and Nineveh provinces, they had, they're very uh, remember when we talk about Afghanistan, that tribes are more important than national borders or anything else. ISIS studied this. ISIS studied hearts and minds, y'all. We did not. <laughs> and so ISIS built on those ties. And those ties, basically, that's what's going to become a big backbone of the formation of ISIS. Um, so in 2013, ISIS took control of all of the violence and issues in Syria. Um, ISIS got its weapons from Iraq. Um, I don't know if you remember this in 2013, but a lot of blame fell on Clinton and Obama um, that they aided in the rise of ISIS. And that's that's where those, if you remember that and thinking, how in the heck did that, what? That's, that's where that came from. Um, also, um, Clinton and Obama um, were accused that by completely withdrawing troops from Iraq in 2011 and not arming moderate Syrian oppositions, that was a problem. And so my question, the question for homework, and, and maybe it was very difficult for y'all because this, I'm assuming is, I think this is a very complicated topic. Maybe, maybe this, this is easy for y'all, but, but some people, some historians will actually argue that if, if America had armed moderate Syrian opposition groups, that, that they could have kind of, again, 
Does that sound familiar? Like the Mujahideen and the Soviet Afghan war, like where does it stop? So part of me is like, huh, that's interesting. Maybe that they could have stopped ISIS from spreading it into Syria, but then, okay, you're funding this group. Then what's, what does that group become? Anyway, I'm, I'm rambling. Um, June of 2014, this group took Mosul and Tikrit and Baghdadi announced that he formed a caliphate or he was going to form a caliphate from Aleppo in Syria to Diwala in Iraq. And he officially renamed the group to the Islamic State of the Levant and Syria or the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, ISIS or ISIL, as you know. Also in um, in this area of the world, um, they also refer to them as Desh, D-A-E-S-H. So in August of 2014, the United States strikes began and also expanded the campaign to Syria based on uh, his announcement. Uh, this is known as Operation Inherent Resolve. And basically, within a few months, over 8,000 airstrikes uh, went over Iraq and Syria. Uh, by 2015, uh, ISIS expanded itself into a network of affiliates into eight other countries. Um, I hope you remember this, but maybe you don't. Um, sorry, my email's up. In October of of 2015, ISIS's Egypt, Egyptian affiliate bombed a Russian airplane, killing 224 people. And I'm assuming you remember this. In June of 2016, um, a gunman pledged support to ISIS and killed like four dozen people in Orlando. So you can see this, like there's lone wolf attacks. This is, this is now becoming like the new norm. Um, by, um, late, um, uh, 2017, uh, there are many um, special operation forces in Iraq pushing back on um, ISIS. Uh, my brother was there. If you want to hear about that, I'm not going to put it on here, but we can talk um, over Zoom or, or FaceTime or whatever. Let me know. Um, but by December of 2017, the ISIS caliphate lost 95% of its territory, including Mosul and Raqqa, which was its nominal capital. Um, in December um, 2018, Trump declared ISIS was defeated and um, he made his intention to withdraw all troops. So what's next? I believe that the global jihadist movement is entering a new phase. Uh, is ISIS gone? No, it's an ideology. It's not gone. You know, there's ISIS members still lurking around. It's not gone. Now, will is Al-Qaeda gone? No. Will Al-Qaeda be able to capitalize upon the moment and reclaim its dominant position? Because no one talked about Al-Qaeda for a long time because everyone was talking about ISIS. Um you know, what has Al-Qaeda learned from this? Have they changed their organization? And um, so the question I asked you for homework is, do terrorist groups care about learning? And I'm going to argue, yeah, they do. That learning is not just a Western, you know, thought. It's not just a, if you want to get anywhere in life, you got to, you got to learn. I do. I really do. I think the terrorist groups and insurgency groups, they need to look at their environment. They need to look, I mean, the environment influences them. You know, what opportunities are available? Uh, you know, Al-Qaeda took advantage of weak states. Look at Syria, look at Somalia, Yemen, Western African areas. Um, 
these groups need to learn. They need to adapt. Um, you know, let's, let's, let's think about it being under a siege from a drone attack. Um, at that point, it's your, your, these groups are dedicated to surviving. Okay. Well, let's now that the attack is over. Okay. Well, how has the environment changed from that attack? Uh, you know, the group needs to be opportunity. I'm not trying to like pump up insurgency and terrorist groups, by the way, I'm just trying to tell you, in my opinion, I think that they're constantly in order for a terrorist group to become an insurgency group. This is what they're doing. Um, they're being agile. They're also looking at Western politics and the shift and how a new president might impact international goals, right? Uh, if, if an American president makes certain promises internationally, that's that makes a big difference. Uh, I, I do think that these groups they're they're thinking beyond their immediate survival, right? And I do think that that there there is a culture of of learning, and that uh, you know there is organizational memory of a group, and it's and and basically in order for a group to survive it needs to survive generations. You know, I, I, I've said this before with clubs at St. Mark's and I'm not comparing clubs to terrorist groups just for the record. But if there's a club that's amazing and the president graduates and goes to college and there's not a great leader or there's not a huge following, that club will, will graduate with that president, right? And so for an insurgency group, that you know, when Osama bin Laden died, you had Zawahiri, who's now, who's now the leader of Al-Qaeda, has, has the, the mentality of Al-Qaeda, has it percolated enough to keep lasting? Has, you know, and training camps are a great place for indoctrination and spreading of knowledge. But also think about social media, right? Think of the Boston bombers. They constructed their bombs using Al-Qaeda online magazines um, to, to, to get those instructions on how to build their devices, all right? Um, I do think these groups will continue to learn. I think they're going to continue to develop new technologies. I think they're going to continue to modify old ways. I think they're going to continue to recruit new members. Um, and I also think they're looking at the geopolitical landscape. Who's fighting? Where to find new contacts? You know, so... Um, uh, I, 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 I leave you with, um, globalization is making it easier for these groups. I, I do think it has, you know, Al Qaeda has been around for, you know, since 1988, you do that math, 1988, it's, it's, it's 2020. And I, I don't want to leave our last podcast on a depressing note, but as, as the future leaders and you're going to take over the world, of course. And, and as I say, all presidents need a good historian and I'm available if, if for those of you who are going to become the next president, um, you know, it's, 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 it's moving forward in, in addition to using the right terms, terrorist group, insurgency group. But as we're looking as, you know, the West is looking at the geopolitical landscape, so are they. And, and as we're looking at the changing of technology and, and social media, so are they. And so, um, I'm, I'm excited for, for what y'all are going to do and help make the world a better place. And, um, I'll talk to you soon. Make good choices.